0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, it's episode two in our 12 Days of Christmas essay series. David Hume on Public Debt. If reading an essay by Montaigne is like going for a walk in the woods with a garrulous, endlessly inquisitive guide, reading an essay by David Hume is a very different kind of experience. It's more like sitting in a comfortable, well-padded armchair, in a comfortable room, maybe an Edinburgh townhouse of the kind that Hume liked to frequent, or a gentleman's club, if they'll let you in. Sitting opposite a comfortable, well-padded man, round-bellied, a bit complacent looking, while he tells you what he thinks. And he really does tell you, and he really does know what he thinks. Montaigne talks to his readers in many ways, Montaigne talks with his readers, Hume does talk at his readers. Some of the things that he thinks and expresses in his essays are pretty unpalatable for a 21st century readership. There was a tower at Edinburgh University until a couple of years ago that was called the David Hume Tower, not anymore. His name's been taken off it because of the racism in some of his essays. I'm not here to defend all of Hume's essays or even recommend that people read them, but despite all of that, some of them, are still great, and the best of them are absolutely electrifying. And the electricity comes in many ways from the contrast between the rather staid, comfortable setting, the way that he writes, controlled and controlling, and the explosiveness of some of the ideas that lie behind his prose. Hume was, in his public presentation, in his politics, a pretty conservative figure, even for his time. But as a philosopher, he was utterly radical. And it's the radical philosopher who is then expressing himself in the form of these essays. As a philosopher, he was prepared to think things that had never been thought before, to think the unthinkable, to contemplate the possibility that this is a godless universe, that we human beings simply don't understand what it is that we experience, that many of our most sacred beliefs and nostrums are nothing but... Superstitious fantasies. He was prepared to think anything. And it's the contrast between that person and the person who writes the essays that gives the essays their extraordinary bite. Hume wasn't the best advocate of his own craft. So he did write an essay about essay writing, an essay about the essay, pretty meta and also pretty off putting. And it is frankly not one of his best. It contains a very unfortunate central image. So Hume believed that he was living in the great age of essay writing. And in some ways, he was right. So this is the Scottish Enlightenment. We're in the middle of the 18th century. This is the era of new magazines and newspapers that are communicating not with a general readership, but with a growing, curious, wider readership of people who want to hear the latest ideas. And the essay is often the form in which those ideas are expressed. And Hume celebrates this. He thinks it's wonderful. And he says it's bridged a gap that previously existed in the ways in which human beings sought to understand the world. So he contrasts what he calls the world of learning with the world of conversation. So until his era, he thought human understanding was divided almost unbridgeably between these two worlds. So learning is literally cloistered it's what happens in a monastery or in a university in a library you know in a room cut off in which someone reads books reflects comes up with ideas that have an academic quality to them Then, as now, Hume believed that a lot of academic thought didn't translate very well, struggled to reach a wider audience or readership, partly because the people who come up with it don't really know how to communicate it. It's cut off. Some of the best ideas are cut off from wider circulation by the circumstances in which they're produced. And then on the other side, you have the world of conversation, or as he calls it, chat, gossip, what most people do most of the time, also curious, inquisitive, but he thought more or less unfounded on philosophical reflection, often in itself rather superficial, easily twisted or provoked by things that hadn't been properly thought through. And the great thing about the essay, this is what Hume thinks, is that it comes from the world of learning but communicates to the world of chat or the world of conversation. It bridges that gap. And the really unfortunate way he expresses this is to say that the world of learning is the world of men. That's what men do. And the world of conversation is the world of women. And he describes himself as an ambassador from the world of learning to the world of conversation. In other words, he literally, literally describes the essay as a form of mansplaining. And even he notices this isn't a great idea because about a page after he comes up with this image, he backtracks from it. It's not a great idea. It's also in some ways not completely inaccurate. He is a bit of a mansplaining essayist. But I think there's another way of putting it. Certainly for his best essays, he doesn't really read like a pompous, self-important man who believes that he's read the significant books, maybe has even written some of the significant books, and now he's here to tell the ladies how to better inform their gossipy conversation. Sometimes at his best, he reads more like he's an ambassador from outer space. It's more like he's a Martian come among us to show us That the things that we take for granted, the things that we do, the things that we either assume are okay or assume are not okay, look really weird seen from the outside. He has a kind of x ray vision that allows him to see through convention and to ask whether we really have the faintest idea what it is that we're doing. And if we don't, how on earth do we think we can justify it? He's, in that respect, Much more like Nietzsche than he is like Nigel Farage. He has his Nigel Farage moments, but he absolutely has his Nietzsche like moments too, where he suddenly just seems to see through us and to show us that many of the things we take for granted, we really shouldn't. So I want to give a couple of examples. One essay I'm going to talk about relatively briefly, and then the second one I want to focus on that I'll discuss at more length that I think have this quality, this Martian like quality. It's not inhuman, but it does make you wonder what it means to be human. Even though these are on very, very different subjects, could hardly be more different. So one of these is an essay in Morality and Religion, about a fundamental and existential question of what it means to be human and to live. And the other is an essay in Economics, or as I think Hume would call it political economy, about a very practical question. But there is a connection between them, and I want to make the connection at the end. I think the connection really matters. The first essay, and I think we need a trigger warning here, is Hume's essay of suicide, or as we might say, on suicide. So this is not an essay in which Hume is just telling people to kill themselves. It's not really advocating suicide. But what it is is attacking the conventional view that suicide is the ultimate sin against God. The religious and moral arguments that set suicide apart as the worst thing that a human being can do, and in many ways, the worst affront to God's divine order of nature. You can read this essay in its Martian guise as a bit heartless. Sometimes there are bits of it that feel like Hume has forgotten what it is that he's writing about. This is about suicide. It's about real human suffering. And yet, this is a very sharp, clear, slightly impersonal philosophical essay. It can feel like Hume is saying at various points, look, kill yourselves, don't kill yourselves. It's up to you. But whatever you do, make sure you get the philosophy right. But that would be a misrepresentation of it, though it has occasional moments that feel like that. Actually, this essay is so much more, and it's so much more human for all of its Martian qualities. It is in many ways the essay of Hume's that's most like Montaigne. It may partly, though Montaigne is not going to share Hume's view about suicide, have literally been inspired by some aspects of Montaigne's writing. There are certainly points in it which sound like they could have been written by Montaigne, in part because One of Hume's arguments against the religious injunction not to commit suicide as an affront to God is that it vastly overstates not the value of human life. Hume takes the value of human life very seriously, but the place of human beings in the universe. It treats human beings as though they had this special quality in God's divine order, which they don't. What Hume wants us to recognize is that either it's all God's order, in which case we are just part of it, or it's not God's order at all. One example he gives is of a river. So he says, No one thinks it's immoral to stop a river in its tracks. You can block up a river, you can dam it, you can change its course, but a river is part of God's divine order if we believe in that. So why can we stop a river, but not if we have good reason to? for ourselves decide to stop our own lives. At another point, he says something which could have been written by Montaigne. This is Hume. But the life of a man is of no greater importance to the universe than that of an oyster. And what he means by that is either we're all part of God's divine order, in which case we cannot treat ourselves as this special, rare, untouchable thing or we're not all part of God's universe, and we are, in some sense, special and rare. But if we are special and rare, if we are different from an oyster, it must be because we uniquely in the universe have been entrusted by God with the right to decide our own fate, unlike the oyster, in which case we can decide to end it. It's also the case that this essay is actually deeply compassionate. So it's partly about suicide, but it's also about euthanasia, it's about the question of whether it is really just to deny human beings who are suffering horribly without relief the relief from that suffering, which would come with trying to end it. I'm sure I'm not alone in often finding myself thinking how unimaginable it is to have lived in an age where there was no pain relief, where there was no way out from not just the prospect of going to the dentist, the example that's always given, how awful it would be to live before anaesthesia, not just what surgery must have been like in the middle of the 18th century, but what disease must have been like, what illness must have been like, not what death, but what dying must have been like, in the absence of any kind of relief. And one of the things that Hume wants his readers to reflect on is whether it is really possible to say... That for the sake of God's divine order, we all have to suffer needlessly, even when an individual human being has decided, for whatever reason, that that person wishes to end their own suffering. What then is the value of the suffering for God? And finally, the essay has a very different kind of argument buried deep within it. I don't think it's there on the surface of the text, but I do think it's there underneath. And it also has, I think, a real contemporary resonance. It's a different kind of philosophy. It's a different kind of set of principles. It's not the rational, logical Hume. It is someone who, I think, understands something about human nature, seeing through it. One of the things that Hume is arguing in this essay is that suicide must be, as it must be, an act of utter desperation when there is no alternative. And people do not do it lightly. What can make human beings desperate is, among other things, the thought that they have no way out. And one of the things that gives people that impression is the religious injunction against suicide. So the desperation that can lead someone to want to end their own life could itself have something to do with the fact that human beings in the age that Hume is writing are told everywhere they look that that is not an option. No matter how bad the suffering, no matter how intolerable the conditions your suffering must persist, that, more than anything, is likely to produce the ultimate desperation. In other words, the injunction against suicide is one of the drivers of it. And the inverse is also true. To allow people genuine freedom of choice on the ultimate question of when and how their suffering is intolerable is one of the things that might make that suffering bearable. It's one of the things that might relieve the desperation. This is an argument that's probably got more in common with existential psychotherapy than it does with 18th century rationalism. But I think that Hume thinks that the thing that leaves human beings feeling trapped is the superstitious nonsense that tells them they have no choice about their own ultimate fate. If you give people a choice, if you trust them to make their own judgment, they are more likely to judge that there are still reasons to want to live. That essay of suicide is in the the Martian genre that says, why do you think that this thing is somehow so much worse than everything else? What is the basis, and Hume calls it explicitly, what is the basis for your superstition? That leads you to rule something out, where if you thought about it just for a moment, dispassionately, carefully, compassionately, you would realise that the thing that you have ruled out is the thing that actually you are probably stoking. Why do you think it's not okay? The essay I want to focus on now, which has a really off-putting title, and it sounds incredibly boring, so you're just going to have to trust me that it's not, is the other way round about a very different kind of subject but also asking the opposite question not why do you think this thing is not okay it's asking why on earth do you think this thing is okay why do you believe you can carry on like this have you actually thought about it do you know what you look like doing this do you know what the reasons that you give to justify this actually look like when they're seen through my x-ray specs the thing in question is public debt, though the title of the essay is of public credit. Awful title, great essay. But also, like the essay of suicide, it really is of contemporary resonance. It's not about now, it's grounded in arguments in the middle of the 18th century that have no translatability to today. And at the same time, it completely chimes with today in part because we are living in an age where arguments about public debt are central to our politics. What Hume is writing about in this essay is what American politicians have been arguing about for the past couple of months, but also for years, and the argument is nowhere near complete. It's been temporarily settled. It's completely unresolved, which is the question of when, why, and how does a nation's willingness to put itself more and more in debt, to borrow more and more money, become unsustainable? When does public debt risk becoming national suicide? Those arguments have been heard in the US Congress in the last few weeks before I recorded this podcast. And they were the arguments that animated Hume nearly 300 years ago. They're not the same arguments, but there is a family resemblance. I want to describe what Hume says. I want to describe how it connects with the sorts of things that many people in US politics and indeed British politics believe today. And then I want to say why the match isn't quite right. And it's so easy to misunderstand what it is that Hume is actually saying. So to summarise Hume's argument about public debt and public credit, he starts from the assumption that political life, the life of a state has to be paid for somehow. It costs money because it does. It's hard to deny that. What costs money? Primarily, Hume thinks national defense. That's the most important thing that a state does. So armies have to be paid for. Navies have to be fitted out. Public buildings and fortifications have to be fit for purpose. But there are other public works too. There are obligations that states have. And the money has to come from somewhere. So how do you raise it? How do you raise the money for public life? There are basically, he thinks, only three options. I'm putting it crudely, but I think Hume thinks it's almost as simple as this. You could get money to fund your state by conquest. This is the most old-fashioned way. This is the classical way. If you need money, if you need resources, if you need gold, you steal someone else's. You invade their territory you take what's there because all's fair in love and war. And if you win the war, you can have what's theirs. Gold then, oil now, doesn't matter what it is. One way to get assets is to take someone else's. So option one is conquest. The second way you can do it is taxation. You can get your own citizens or the people who happen to live within the borders of your state to pay by taxing them on their wealth or their assets or their consumption. Less so in the 18th century were people thinking about on their income. This is a sort of pre-income tax age, but it doesn't really matter. We all know what taxation means. It means that the state requires you to pay something for its upkeep. And then the third way you can do it is to borrow. You could take out loans promise to pay them back at some future point, and then use the money that you have loaned for whatever it is that you need to spend money on now. You mortgage the future for the sake of the present. The thing about loans is you also have to have an answer to the question of how they're going to be paid back if anyone's ever going to lend to you. And the answer has to be the same as the answer of how you raise money in the first place. There are only three options. So you could pay back the loans by conquest. The most straightforward way this might work is you borrow money to equip your army Your equipped army wins a war and the spoils of that war go to pay back your creditors. Hume thinks that is the crudest possible form of politics and not really suited to the modern age. The second way you could promise to pay back your debts is through taxation. So you mortgage now and taxes, present and future, are put aside to service the interest on the debt and ultimately to repay the debt. And the third way you could do it is to borrow to pay back what you've borrowed, which people do all the time. You have your payday loans, they're getting out of hand, so you consolidate them and you borrow from someone else in order to allow you to pay back the thing that you can't sustain and so on. And Hume believes, for very good reasons, that that is long-term unsustainable. You can't keep borrowing to pay back borrowings. At some point, that becomes self-defeating. So those are the options. And he's very aware that, of those three, debt is by far the path of least resistance. It is literally the path of least resistance, because the trouble with conquest is people will resist. No one likes being invaded. You might fight the war and lose it, and then you really are in trouble. You're both massively in debt, and also actually someone is taking your assets. Taxation always meets resistance, because nobody likes paying tax. And the more tax that you try and raise, the harder it gets. People start trying to hide stuff and avoid the tax and get out of the way when the tax collectors come to call. And then there's debt, which is easy. States actually find it remarkably easy to get people to lend to them. They look like a reasonably secure credit risk. It doesn't cause anyone any immediate pain because the pain is put off to the future. So, of course, politicians have a propensity to go down that route. It's the easiest path by far. So on the one hand, Hume recognises debt is the way that people are going to try and fund this when they can. And on the other hand, he suspects that it's dangerous and unsustainable. And it's dangerous because of the things that it does to a nation. It creates certain conditions that he doesn't approve of. But more than that, it also creates hostages to fortune in the future. So he describes a national debt-driven economy as something that is inherently speculative and frothy because it begins to revolve quite quickly around paper money, as he calls it, but also people transacting in the debt itself. So you lend money to a state, to a government, and they issue bonds. Those bonds then become things that can be traded. So you get trade upon trade. People, individuals, companies, businesses acquire credit through the credit of the state. The paper circulates. It's speculative. It's frothy. It's volatile. It's unbalanced, he thinks. So the danger of that kind of economy is the things, and he is conservative about this, The things he believes are reliable and stable, particularly land, which he does believe is the foundation of a stable national economy, agriculture and land. It's a very 18th century argument. But land is really hard to conceal. It's hard to move. It's very fixed. It's visible. All this frothy activity is constantly circulating and hard to pin down. And so you get an economy where, as it were, land is mortgaged to service frothy debt and it's the wrong way round. Land is in the service of the speculators. And that, he thinks, is a recipe for undoing, ultimately, the security and the fabric of the state. But he also thinks it's a massive hazard to fortune. At some point in the future, if you live in a state that is indebted up to the gills, something will happen that needs more money. Debt should be there for an emergency. He completely accepts that in some circumstances, you have to borrow to get out of trouble. You're under attack. You find yourself at war. There is some emergency. There is some natural disaster. The state needs shoring up. It needs rescuing in some way. In those circumstances, it's really hard just to raise money by conquest. I mean, a conquest is not something you can just do overnight. It's also really hard to raise money just by introducing new taxes because of all of the resistance, if you need money quickly, by far the easiest and best way to raise it is to borrow it. So there's nothing absolutist about Hume's view about debt. He understands that it's often necessary. And he also completely understands, actually, that it's often very beneficial. So though he describes a a national debt-driven economy as this dangerous, volatile, frothy thing, he also accepts, explicitly recognises that it often drives innovation, that this circulation of this form of money and exchange is actually very good for new businesses getting off the ground. It breaks up some of the stranglehold of established powers and the the less adventurous aspects of the economy. He recognises that it's good for industry. He's not just against it. He doesn't think it's immoral and wicked and a sin against God. There's none of that in this. This is a very pragmatic argument. But if debt is routine so that everything is funded that way because it's the path of least resistance, you have squeezed the room that you need when there's an emergency. If you're mortgaged up to the hilt, you've shrunk the space you need to take on new debt. And you've also made yourself much less equipped to service and manage the obligations that you have. Because at some point, debt has to be repaid. At some point, there at least has to be a belief among the creditors of the nation that this isn't a scam. And debt can't always be repaid by more debt. At some point, basically, it has to be repaid by taxation. But if you have treated debt as just routine every day, just the way we run the state, Hume thinks, you will not know how to raise the money when you really need it. You will either have shrunk the space for new debt, or you will have forgotten how to genuinely and effectively and efficiently raise money through taxation. And so you will have squeezed your options for the future. And he believes that it's incredibly dangerous in a dangerous world where you never know what's coming. You don't know from one year to the next when your state will be under threat from war or disease or some natural disaster or some kind of economic crisis. You don't know when you need the expediency of debt. But he believed that the British state in the middle of the 18th century had turned something which should just be an expediency into a natural phenomenon, into something that just is an everyday part of life. And for that reason, the British state no longer had the flexibility that it needed to meet future disaster. And therefore, at some point, he thought the whole thing would come crashing down. Now, in his description of the risks And what might go wrong? There is a lot that I'm certain chimes with the beliefs and arguments of many 21st century politicians, particularly in the United States, who believe that America's debt is placing it on the path ultimately to ruin. So, some of the things that Hume says that seem to chime and to connect are these. One of his arguments against this kind of assumption that if in doubt, we'll just borrow more money is that the unbalancing of the economy that it produces generates vast concentrations of power and wealth in finance and in cities. So in 18th century terms, this is a country versus city argument, or as we might put it now, rural versus urban. This kind of economy concentrates people and power and wealth close to centers of finance. In the English case, the British case, Hume says that this debt-driven economy has vastly inflated and gorged London, that London is sucking in resources from all over the rest of the country. And it's been concentrated in a place where it's then producing not just frivolous and speculative activity, but a kind of mindset where people think that anything goes and the future will take care of itself. Let's enjoy the present. There is some disapproval in that, but there's also just a sense that, Long term, it's unsustainable. You can't unbalance a national economy in that way. And there are echoes of this throughout contemporary conservatism, the idea that there is a way of running a state driven by debt, speculation and future borrowing that unbalances it in favour not just of finance, not just of cities, but of the concentrations of wealth and power that happens in cities at the expense of, for want of a better phrase in the terms of this kind of argument, the real country, the people who are left behind, the people who still live in places that are grounded, grounded maybe in the land or in tradition or in community. You've got the frivolous cities, and then you've got the rest. And Hume says, this way of running a national economy, in the end, does immense damage to the relationship between, the balance between the cities and the rest. He also says that it is an insane hostage to fortune because it gives too much power to people he calls foreigners, that is, overseas holders of the national debt. Too much of the debt is held by people who don't have any allegiance to the country that owes the money. And that's dangerous because in circumstances of war, particularly, those people might be your enemies. And you've given them a hold over you. In fact, you've given them the ability to cut off the lifeblood of your economy. The contemporary American state is massively indebted to China. The Chinese state holds vast quantities of US Treasury bonds. It's a complicated arrangement, it's a complicated balance. America and China may be on the cusp of a new Cold War. They certainly aren't getting along. And then Maybe circumstances in which a Cold War becomes a hot war over Taiwan. In which case, Hume would say, and the people who would echo him now would reiterate, being massively in debt to your enemies is a kind of suicide. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax... Hume also says that the danger of this kind of economy is that it gives money and influence to the financiers, the bankers, the traders, the brokers, who don't have to remain loyal to the state, even if they're citizens of the state. So not just does it take loans from foreigners, but also in borrowing from its own citizens, the state allows those citizens to feel that they don't have a primary loyalty to the place where they live or where they were born. Because the asset is so easily translatable abroad. They can be anywhere. If you own land in the 18th century, if you own other kinds of property, industry, you have a loyalty to place. Hume thinks a debt-laden economy empowers what one more recent politician, Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, called the citizens of nowhere. I don't think in Hume, I may have missed it, because it's usually there somewhere, but I can't see it in Hume. This is the anti-Semitic version of that argument, the cosmopolitan financiers, otherwise known as the Jews, who can't be trusted. But there were echoes of it in the 18th century, and there sure as hell of echoes of that kind of argument in the 21st century. But the idea that finance generates a kind of citizenship, which is anywhere rather than somewhere citizenship, Hume says is dangerous. And the people who echo Hume's argument now would agree. And finally, Hume says the unsayable. He says the thing that many American politicians in the last few months have been dancing around, some dare to say it, most don't, Because Hume has concluded this way of financing a state, a polity, a national economy, is ultimately, one, unsustainable, and two, a massive hostage to fortune. It's essential to contemplate a default, to refuse to pay the debt. And Hume argues that the British state should be willing to renege on its debts, to cut off the financiers, to refuse to honour those obligations in order to rescue itself from the slippery slope to ruin. Hume is completely aware that a default could have all sorts of damaging and unforeseen consequences, and in any complex economy, refusing to pay your debts is a dangerous thing to do. But he argues it's less dangerous than the alternative, which is either being in hock to foreigners, being mortgaged up to the eyeballs and not having any way out, being unable to raise the money needed under circumstances not of your choosing. A voluntary default is at least an act of will. The timing is of the choosing of the state in question, and it is still a way of exercising control. The fear that Hume has is that this way of funding an economy in the absence of a willingness to refuse to pay your debts leads longer term to a complete loss of control. And that argument is there in American politics in 2023. The debt default argument is it really impossible to contemplate that America would refuse to pay its debts if the alternative is just to keep feeding the beast, feeding the beast, until the debts overwhelm the state? At least a managed default would be an act of political will. A chaotic, unmanaged default would be evidence of national catastrophe. You can find that argument in Hume, and you can hear that argument in contemporary American politics. So the question is, is Hume their guy? Should those conservative debt critics who believe that America is on the path to ruin because it is so massively indebted and seemingly incapable of reining itself in, of not feeding the beast, do those people find the sophisticated, elegant philosophical arguments they need to bolster their position in the essays of David Hume. No, they don't. It would be a mistake for anyone to think that therefore what you get from Hume is an argument for America being willing to default on its debts. And I'm going to give a few reasons and then I'm going to explain what I think is the real lesson of Hume's essay. So one reason is a historical one. That essay of public credit actually exists in two versions, and the current published version is an amalgamation of the two. So the first version Hume wrote in 1752, the second one in 1764. It's the 1752 version where Hume says, we've got to be willing to consider cutting these debts off and the short-term pain that would lead to, because at least that way we can get control back over the way we do politics. We're no longer in hock in a way that actually ultimately is going to lead us to ruin. And he's talking about an era where Britain has been fighting a war, the war of Austrian succession. It's running up debts. Things feel a bit sketchy and out of control. But Hume believes there is still at least the possibility of intelligent, responsible politicians getting a grip And this is his suggested way of getting a grip. It's better than the alternatives. By 1764, he no longer believes that, because by that point, Britain has just fought a much bigger war, the Seven Years' War, which was perhaps the first world war, a war against France, but one that extended to North America and around the globe, the oceans of the world. It drew Britain into much, much heavier borrowing, massive debts, much greater than anything that Hume had foreseen in 1752. So his worst fears, the debt has escalated out of control in order to fund a war, a war that Britain, broadly speaking, won. So as it were, the debt paid off. But there's no serious plan as far as he can tell, from anyone to know how to repay it. And it's so enmeshed and entwined in the way that the economy works that he can no longer contemplate a default with any kind of sense that it might come out okay. He is completely aware that past a certain point of no return, the size of the debt, the intertwining of the debt with all of the aspects of economic life, the ways in which credit is something that has so many ways of going wrong, past a certain point, any kind of default would be a catastrophe. And in the 1764 version of the essay, Hume is deeply pessimistic that there's any way out. He thinks it's too late. The debt is too great. And he's also very, very conscious that there are ways of irresponsibly defaulting that make the situation far worse. Because any act of default Is also in its way an act of theft. It's an act of arbitrary power. It's fine to say, okay, someone's got to suffer for this, so let's punish a few thousand bankers. They'll be okay, we'll be okay yes, people will start borrowing and lending again once they've got over the initial shock. We can weather the storm far better to take a hit now than to store up all this trouble for the future. That's the kind of thing he believed in the early 1750s, just more than a decade later. He believes that the debt is so great that the act of refusing to pay it would itself be an act of arbitrary power that would destroy much of the liberty, the freedom of the state. Any politician, that refuses to honour obligations on that scale, is a kind of tyrant. The risk of default is not just chaos. It's also that the politician or the regime, the government that undertakes the default, in order to do it, in order to hold the state together, has to acquire extraordinary arbitrary powers. Thinking of the US state defaulting now, and thinking of the risk of what would result from that, would be not less but more arbitrary government, not less but more state control, should give anyone pause. The second difference is that Hume is not railing against the welfare state. He's not worrying about the fact that the state has built up all of these debts because it is being exploited by the people who are essentially scrounging off it, which is the crudest version of the contemporary conservative argument against the state that is massively indebted to sustain what are believed to be unsustainable welfare programmes. Hume's just not thinking about that at all. Hume's is a pre-democratic argument. In fact, one of the weird twists in Hume's argument is one of the things that he favours about a debt-laden economy is the power that it gives to finance, to the City of London, to Wall Street, whatever the equivalent is is a safeguard against the thing that he fears, which is populist democracy. So he's very conscious, as many conservatives of his time were, of democracy as a kind of threat to order and stability because the poor people will, among other things, want to abolish all stable financial systems. And because finance is so nervous about public credit, finance will encourage the state to put down any signs of a popular uprising. And Hume says that's a good thing from his perspective. The good thing about debt is that it stifles democracy. That argument doesn't really translate across at all to a democratic age. There are populist versions of the anti-state debt argument now. Hume wouldn't recognise them. He wouldn't recognise the Trump version. Trump is the thing that he would fear, someone exploiting wild popular sentiment and the risks that that runs in a heavily indebted, debt-laden state. For Hume, would be unconscionable. The thing that Hume is worried about is not welfare and people living off the state in ways that the state can't afford. Hume is basically worried about war and defence. And Hume believes that relying on debt encourages not just frivolous finance, but frivolous war making. Because it's so easy to borrow money, it's very tempting for politicians to undertake wars they don't need to fight. And at the age of debt-fueled political economy is also the age of stupid wars. Now, that is a 21st century argument. Many people believe that now. Many people believe that one of the most damaging features of contemporary American politics is the way in which it is so easy to finance stupid wars. As Dick Cheney said of his wars, he didn't say debt, he said deficits, but for these purposes, we can treat them the same. Deficits don't matter. But that's not really just an argument on the right. It's an argument on the left too. It's not clear that that is the argument that is sustaining these partisan divisions in Washington about what is and isn't ultimately going to bankrupt the United States. There is something that translates across here, but the ideology and the partisan divide doesn't really map, doesn't actually map at all. One of the features of conservative anxieties about the massive levels of US debt and public spending is drawing on 20th century economics rather than 18th century economics. The great fear of inflation, the other thing that's always being argued about in Washington and beyond, the risks of a massively inflationary spiral that will ruin the state. And the fear that huge amounts of debt encourage inflation because after all, one of the ways in which a state can relieve the burden of debt is to print more money, and by doing so, make the existing debts cheaper. But the price of that is inflation. You can inflate away your obligations without, strictly speaking, defaulting on them. Now, it might be thought that Hume would be horrified by that, but there isn't any evidence that he was. He doesn't write about it, not in this essay. But when he's considering the options, military disaster, being a hostage to some emergency that ruins the state and breaks the social order... Inflation is almost certainly in his mind, if it's possible, the least of those evils. When he's contemplating default, it's default in the absence of the other option, which is to inflate your debts away. I'm not at all convinced that given the options, Hume wouldn't believe actually printing more money is by far the safest way out. Hume is not Hayek. And then finally, why should contemporary conservatives not say that Hume is our guy? because he was wrong. He was just straight out wrong in his prognostications for what would happen to the British state because of its indebtedness. The British state was not, and has not, to this point, been ruined by debt. And the British state, after Hume's death, took on far greater debts than anything Hume could conceivably have contemplated. So if the Seven Years' War put the War of Austrian Succession into a hat because of the scale of it. The wars at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, the Napoleonic Wars, what became for the British state its existential struggle, its true world war conflict, meant that the British state took on exponentially more borrowing. What Hume would assume was definitively bankruptcy level borrowing in order to defeat first the French Revolution and then Napoleon and the British state survived it. It didn't just survive it. In the end, it flourished and the debt did not overwhelm it. Some of the debt was paid back, some of it was inflated away. But the options that Hume laid out in 1764, all of which lead fairly rapidly to disaster, did not come to pass. Why? It's a complicated story. It does involve conquest because one of the things that Britain acquired as the result of its victories in those wars was an empire. The British Empire certainly helped and the British Empire was exploitative. The British Empire did conquer and seize parts of the globe which definitely helped to relieve some of its burdens. Part of the answer is peace so Hume is writing at a time where he assumes that war on the European continent is a semi-permanent feature of life despite its stupidity, despite the fact that everyone would be better off if we could just trade rather than trying to kill each other. But in the 19th century, war on the European continent certainly involving Britain became much much rarer and there were long periods of peace during which responsible British governments in their own minds sought to diminish the burden of debt and to pay some of it back inflate some of it away, but also actually the 19th century was a deflationary period too. Political responsibility was not ruled out by the level of debt that the British state took on, it was actually in the end enabled by it. And finally, the thing that made a difference is the thing that Hume never believed in, didn't understand, and frankly was completely wrong about, democracy. Democratic politics, electoral representative democratic politics, not the mob rule that Hume feared, turns out also periodically to be quite responsible. It's also periodically irresponsible, but it's not always one thing. Democracy is not a slippery slope to bankruptcy and ruin. Some governments spend too much, and they're often replaced by governments that promise to tighten the books. Sometimes tightening the books is a terrible idea, Britain's been through one of those experiences recently. Sometimes tightening the books is actually a responsible thing to do. It varies. There's no single answer here. There's no pattern. But the point is, it's not just a path to disaster. Democracy turns out to be a very flexible, very pragmatic form of government. What's true of Britain is also true of the United States. So, Britain through the 19th century, partly thanks to its empire, moves from being a debtor nation to a creditor nation. And it has the global reserve currency, sterling, which is the basis of much of its power and its influence and its durability. Britain then, first with the First World War, then with the Second World War, turns into a debtor nation because it has to borrow on a truly unimaginable scale for its national survival. Much of that borrowing is from the United States. So the United States becomes the great creditor nation and the one whose currency, the dollar, becomes the global reserve currency, which is the basis of much American power and American control. But America has now gone down the British route. It fought wars it couldn't afford, like the Vietnam War. It borrowed frivolously and irresponsibly. It is the path of least resistance. America is now a massive debtor nation. You can, if you want to, go to a website called US Debt Clock and see the debt in real time. I can look at it on my phone now. I think it's about $32 trillion. And if you look at it, it goes up about $100,000 every two seconds. America is a debtor nation, which is why some American politicians think America is on the road to perdition and ruin. But if Britain is anything to go by, it's not. It's amazing how adaptable, pragmatic, democratic states can be. America may no longer be a pragmatic, democratic state. That's another story. But you can't say, look, Hume warned that this was unsustainable in 1764 and that disaster was just around the corner. And he's right, because nearly 300 years later, we must be on the brink of disaster. If it's 300 years later, the chances are... We're not. It's not that Hume's warnings don't count. The complexity of this level of indebtedness is a hostage to fortune. It is not the road to perdition. The one state that did follow the path that Hume warned against was France. So the French state did go bankrupt. It couldn't sustain its debts. The French monarchy collapsed under the weight of its debts. And the result was the French Revolution. And though Hume didn't live to see it, the French Revolution would in many ways have confirmed his worst fears. And Edmund Burke, writing about the French Revolution, takes a Humean line on this and says, this is what happens when debt destroys a nation. What you get is arbitrary, tyrannical, dictatorial rule. But the thing about what happened in France is not exactly as Hume foresaw it, because it wasn't the case that the French revolutionary regime refused to acknowledge or honour the debts of its monarchical predecessor. What the French Revolution did was to assume those debts in the name of the nation itself. France took on the king's debts as France. And in the long run, that was the sustainable path. What the French Revolution illustrated, and most other modern states have gone down this route, is that the way to make even... Vast long term borrowing secure is to bureaucratize it, to funnel it through the machinery of the state. Take the debt on in the name of the nation itself, not of this ruler or that ruler, of this regime or that regime, of these people or those people. Hume is still thinking about debt in personal terms who owes what to whom? Post the French Revolution, state debt is on the path to becoming something which is essentially. Self sustaining because the state is a debt servicing machine. A state that has that level of bureaucratic drive behind it will just keep going through the ups and downs of debt servicing. The British state has done it, the American state has done it, the French state has done it. Now, it is true that some states have been ruined by their propensity to run up debts that they can't sustain and then default on them in some of the ways that Hume warned about. Argentina is a pretty good example. Argentina at the start of the 20th century should have been, was on course to be one of the world's great powers, great economic powers. It has been ruined by periodic default. It's not destroyed. But those prospects, where it is now relative to where it could be, to where some European, where the American state is, is evidence of the fact that there are routes down which debt does become disaster. But it's not true of the most elaborate, mechanical, bureaucratized, efficient, well-functioning state debt machines, of which the United States is one. There is a vast bureaucracy behind all the froth in Washington that is still churning. So, I think the lesson from Hume is different, and I think actually it relates to his suicide essay. Hume says there are three ways the debt story could end. What he calls violent death, that means the state gets conquered, someone comes and slits its throat. What he calls natural death, that's when the debt becomes unsustainable, when the default is at a time not of your choosing, like a natural death, you are just essentially terminated, the life is squeezed out of you because you have borrowed, you can't pay it back. It can happen gradually, it can happen suddenly, as Hemingway said of bankruptcy, first gradually, then suddenly. That's how the debt is terminated. And both of those are a disaster. One is conquest, one is ruin. And then the third, he says, is what he calls voluntary euthanasia, the voluntary euthanasia of the national debt, which is the deliberate managed default where you refuse to pay under circumstances of your choosing in order to try to liberate yourself from an unsustainable burden. I don't think in the end actually Hume is saying that's what you should do any more than in his suicide essay he's saying you should commit suicide. I don't think Hume thinks that suicide is a good idea at all. But as he says in the suicide essay, telling people it's completely forbidden is one of the ways to drive them mad. It's one of the ways to make people so desperate that they'll do anything. To give people the opportunity to do the responsible thing, you have to give permission for everything to be on the table. You have to at least talk about the possibility that this is unsustainable in order to find a way to make it sustainable. So in that respect, I think Hume does support some of the arguments being heard on the conservative side in Washington, which say that we can't just keep saying that certain things are not even discussable. We can't just not talk about it. We have to be willing to discuss it. But discussing it is one way of ensuring that it doesn't happen, not that it does happen. And maybe something like that has just happened in Washington. After all, the American debt machine is still being serviced. But Hume also has another argument. He doesn't think suicide is a good idea because suicide only makes sense when the burden is unsustainable. A human being may well find life an unendurable burden, but most human beings don't just experience life as a burden. They also exist in the world in order to carry burdens for others. We have mutual overlapping obligations. Suicide is a terrible thing to do, If other people, their lives, their well-being, their happiness, depends on you, leave God out of the equation. Affronts to God are irrelevant here. But anyone contemplating what is and isn't endurable has to think about the web of obligations in which they exist. There are some circumstances in which the burden is intolerable, but the burden isn't only on one individual. Now, there may be people who believe that the burden on the American state is intolerable and it has to be put out of its misery. But it would be insane to believe that the American state isn't also, as well as being a burden, carrying the burden of the nation. The American state funds all those programs that even the populist politicians who want to talk about not honoring the debt depend on to keep their supporters alive, Medicare, Medicaid, all the rest of it. There may be a case for cutting down on frivolous wars. There may be a case for thinking more rationally about what can and can't be afforded. There is no case for the national suicide of the public debt as though the public debt were itself a burden rather than the means by which all American citizens are able to sustain the financial, the economic, but also in many ways the social burden of their own lives. We are dependent and we are codependent and interdependent, in which circumstances this talk of a default, Hume would say, is effectively mad. You've got to talk about it, not so that you do it, but so that you have the freedom not to do it. And if you are feeling that you have no option but to do it, with this level of debt, of interconnectedness, of interdependency, don't do it. Do the other thing. And Hume would agree with this. The other thing is have a better politics. To find out more about this podcast, please follow us on Twitter, at PPF Ideas. Tomorrow, day three for the 12 days of Christmas, Thoreau on civil disobedience. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.